0: If you would please take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of First Timothy this morning, where we resume our study. As you well know, if you've been with us, we've been making our way through this of first of three letters that Paul wrote, which we know as the pastoral epistles, that he wrote to young men or men in ministry uh, who are at different spots to give them instruction for how the church and those the local church, and I won't just say in those context or locations. This is instruction for how the local church, in general, should function in whatever context it finds itself in, because we find here, written in Scripture, objective truths that are meant to govern how God's people gather, how God's people interact with one another, how God's people execute ministry, and who does what. God is very particular, as we might think. We think of God. He is a God of the detail Uh, and we are told in in Matthew that He knows when the flight path of a sparrow drops. (laughs) We are told in another gospel that He knows the very number of hairs on our head. So if God is that detailed in what He knows, it makes sense then that He details how He wants His body, His church, the bride of His Son Jesus to function. And so this morning we've been making our way Specifically, when we started in chapter 2, we began looking at Paul's instruction for what, what should it mean when, we, when the gathered body gathers, when the body gathers, That's was a little redundant, when the body gathers, what should it look like? And that's kind of what we've been dealing with in a larger degree, uh, how we pray, uh, what, our, what our overseers, what the character qualities of our overseers should be, our elders, what the character qualities of our deacons should be, and so forth and so on. Well, this morning, he's kind of bringing not the letter to a close, but this section, he's kind of coming to the culmination of all that we've been looking at in chapters two and three. He's bringing it to a close. He's summing it up for us. And there's this wonderful phrase that he uses in there. That we're going to elaborate on here in just a few moments called the mystery of godliness. And he's getting at the mystery of godliness. If you could take what is one phrase, what is one phrase, one idea that sums up what Timothy, 1 Timothy 2 and 3 would actually communicate to us, it would be the mystery of godliness. Now, we're going to go through and unpack that here in just a few moments, but that's where we are. Paul has come to these last three verses of chapter 3 that are bring a nice little summation of what we've been talking about before he moves on to begin to enlighten Timothy about what's going to happen as people depart the faith. How do we deal with that when that happens? That's another thing that Paul will deal with. But that's for then, this is now. And now we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. So, beloved God, follow along with me as we read these three verses. This is God's infallible and errant word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this very brief paragraph this morning. It may be brief in nature, but it is deep and wide as far as truth and gospel beauty go. Father, may we plumb the depths this morning, and may it transform who we are. May it transform our vision of you. May it transform our vision of your people. And may we leave here never the same because your word is true and powerful and transforming. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. Perhaps you've said it or you've heard somebody say it. There's no doubt whose child that is. You can think of some situations where you've seen parents and children interact, and you've heard it or you've thought there's no doubt whose child that is. And people will say that for any number of reasons. Sometimes there's a striking physical similarity. Sometimes the child just really looks like the parent. In some cases, in some cases, it's because they have similar mannerisms or sense of humor of one parent. In fact, there's one of my children, there's no mistaking whose father is his. Because when you listen to his sense of humor, it is very clear who has influenced his sense of humor. And um, I do take full credit for that, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, you know, as a young dad, I didn't appreciate that... Even even in, in good jesting, sarcasm really does seep in. And Rachel would constantly be like, Brad, and I'm like, sweetie, they're going to have so much self-esteem when they get older that no one's going to be able to break their confidence. At least that's what I would tell myself. Um, hopefully that'll be true. But whatever the case, whatever the case, whatever the case, when we say there's no doubt whose child that is, what we mean to intend is that a parent has left a significant mark on a child. That in some way, whether physically or you know, uh, mannerisms or, or jesting style or thought processes, the parent has made a significant impact on the child. And it makes sense. Don't let, don't let the media, don't let the culture tell you that parents, you really don't have influence over your children. The culture does. That's a lie from Satan. You have your children in the most formative years, and if we choose to invest, we're going to have the biggest impact on our children. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you have the biggest impact on your children, they're always going to turn out perfect. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they have a better shot of turning out well if we invest in our children. If we choose to want to work in their lives to see them formed, however imperfectly we do it, it's a good investment. So it makes sense that a child would imitate a parent when a parent has had significant impact on him in the formative years. Well, oddly enough, not oddly, incidentally, that's exactly a similar point that Paul is making here. As we spend time with Christ, the overarching characteristic of our lives should, in fact, be godliness. It should, in fact, lead us to be imitators of Christ. That's why he's working his way up to this notion of the mystery of godliness. I've already alluded to this, but you can't miss the overall message in First Timothy chapter 2 and 3. Godliness, that is the issue. He, he addresses how we pray and what we should pray for and what we should be doing in prayer and how we should adorn ourselves and what roles we play all to the glory of God that we are seeking to be imitators of God in that way. In chapter 3, he begins to talk about the elders and the deacons and how they should be imitators of God and and lead in their respective ways in imitating God. So, So what Paul is doing here is not only true for Ephesus, it's true for us. It's exactly why the character of leaders is so valuable and important. Elders are to lead to godliness by being examples of godliness. That should be the overarching mark of our elders, is godliness. Deacons should lead us to serve with more godliness as they lead in serving with godliness. What does it mean to serve with godliness? Humility, sacrificially, without complaint. All the ways in which Jesus served. And so... When we, th- when we think about this, when we think about our worship, what we're gathered here today to do, our aim should be godliness because we gather in the name of God to exalt the name of God for the glory of God. And so when we come into this body, this gathered body, The best thing we can do to encourage each other is through our own commitment to being godly ourselves. Now, obviously, we need to be sincere in our worship, but the godly man or woman is sincere in their worship. Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is you're less than godly if you struggle sometimes because you're feeling life's weight on you and you're having to motivate yourself in here to worship. God, be praised that you're here. God be praised that you felt, enough, you felt it important enough to be here. So that I'm not trying to say every godly person is always skipping into church with a song in their heart. No. Sometimes we come dragging this ball of grief or anxiety or anger or hardship, but we come, and that's what's important. And hopefully when we are here, our burden becomes a little less light, a little less heavy say, I think I just made it heavier when I said that, a little less heavy, uh, as we worship the Lord. You know, in modern history, within the last, let's say, 100 years, there's been a lot of debate in the church. There's been debates on music style, right? I've witnessed to myself. There's been debates on decor, what a church should look like, or interior design or whatnot. There have been de- debates on how we handle this or how we handle that. There's been a whole host of debates on really inconsequential things, really inconsequential. You know, we're, we're struggling because we want, we want the pipe organ, not the piano, or we don't want drums in the church that have no place, or why don't we have enough drums? We don't need guitars, but why don't we have a flute? All kinds of stuff, we hear it. Well, those things are so inconsequential. It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. There may be some things that aren't your your flavor, aren't your aren't your taste. It doesn't matter. What matters are the questions we should be asking is, are we as a body pursuing godliness? Are we as a body really pursuing truth and godliness to to continue to reflect and imitate Christ? Those are the questions that should dominate the sphere of our conversations? Do we exa- are we examining our own hearts to see if we are reflections of Christ? And I'm preaching to Brad this morning, just so you know, as I write this, I have to reflect on this. Am I, your pastor, examining my heart often enough to ask myself, am I really being a reflection of Christ? And in so many cases and instances, I- I'm not. It's a sin in my own life. Where I'm having to say, man, Lord, help me to be more, more committed to reflecting in my own life. To ask myself, do I really am I really pursuing Christ? I would challenge you to do the same thing. Not pursuing Christ so much as pursuing, reflecting Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. Reflecting Christ. When Paul talks about the mystery of godliness, it's vital to the Christian life. It is essential to the Christian life. Godliness... It's how we must conduct ourselves if we are living for Jesus. And you know, if you've been present in the last at least the last two sermons, godliness has been the main topic. So here it is again, and this should tell us something. This should really tell us something, that Paul's essential point about church life is godliness. Godliness as opposed to what? Worldliness. It's just so easy to be worldly. So easy, because it's easy on the flesh. It makes life more, quote unquote, fun for a season. It just becomes an easy pattern to slip into. And if you've lived long enough, you have slipped into patterns of worldliness just like I have. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see. It's very simple and it's not going to be very profound to you. The church must be a reflection of Christ. Now, it seems like a really unradical thing to say, but in 2022, it actually might be kind of radical to say that the church really must be a reflection of Christ. In the wake of Roe v. Wade, I can't tell you how many, I'm going to say sincere Christians, I don't doubt their sincerity, have fallen all over themselves to make room for why we should still have a some sort of federal constitutional law that abortion should be legal I have a real problem with that. I really do. And if, if you're one of those people, I'd love to have a conversation with you so I can understand why. And it's because, it's because Christians now are trying to align with culture and be tolerant, to be relevant, to be all the other things instead of just being honest and say, I love you and I want to have this conversation with you. But we've got to understand there's going to be a fundamental uh, disagreement here about this issue. And so we really should be a reflection of Christ. And that means in every way. That means in how we are truthful, but also how we are loving. How we are loving. And how we are gracious. How we are charitable. Because listen, if you have the truth, and if you're a Christ this morning, in Christ you do, you don't have to get angry about it. You don't have to. You don't have to fight about it. We can be honest and be loving. We can be honest and be charitable. We can be honest, uncompromising, and gracious. And we should be. Well, I'm going to say the word godliness a million times this morning, but that's the central tenet of this section, godliness. And as Christians are called to be godly, what Paul is doing here is kind of re-summing up what Jesus taught when he said that Christians ought to be, or that we are to be, not ought to be, are to be salt and light. That's the way Jesus talked about us being salt and light. What he's really saying is we need to be reflections of the kingdom of God in the Gospels. We need to be reflections of Christ himself. We need to be reflections of righteousness and holiness. And we need to embody those things. And of course, I'm not going to make this caveat every time. By now you understand. We, we know that we're not always going to do that perfectly, but that should be what we're striving for. That should be what our goal is, is to reflect righteousness, and so, when we, we look at, when we look at these three verses, actually what Paul does here is something really neat. He gives us what is the central message to this letter. So, in other words, if we were going to sum up 1 Timothy in a sentence, it would actually come in verse 15 that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is the thesis, that is the thesis to First Timothy. Everything else before that and after that are meant to explain what Paul means when he says that. So he's given Timothy the heart of the letter, and what it is is very simple. This is the expected Christian conduct. This is how Christians, those who profess Christ, Should conduct their lives. Um, When he says here, starting in verse 14, I hope to come to you, but I am writing these things, that these things, that when, when writers use that, it's usually pretty ambiguous. Here we actually have a sense of what Paul is talking about. These things, I'm writing these things, these things before, and these things after. So, these things is the sum of the letter to Timothy. I am writing you these things, i.e., this letter, so that you will have them in case I'm delayed in visiting. Now, Paul did hope to visit. That was his plan. We can read that clearly in the text. But we can also see that in some sense, he anticipated delays. By saying that, if I'm delayed, I think we can kind of read into that just a little bit and say, I might be, or there's a probability that I'm going to be delayed. And we know that because he thought it important enough to go ahead and write it down. If Paul thought he could be there in haste, he might have just come to Timothy and given all these instructions verbally. So in the providence of God, God who knows things from beginning to end, inspired Paul to write them down so that not just Timothy and Ephesus could have this wonderful instruction, but so that the chapel in 2022 could have this instruction in every Bible-preaching church in the history of Christianity. So this is a testimony to the providence of God, which is powerful and beautiful. So he anticipated delays, and his instruction, this is for the assembly now, this is for the church of God, is that he focuses on character. Again, it's on the character of Christians. And I find this interesting we notice that the focus on character and elders, the focus on character and deacons, he sums up the whole of chapter 3 with ending on a note about character. And so he gives this vital instruction, and I love it. Notice, notice what Paul says. He does not focus on gifts. He does not focus on focus on any sort of dynamic gift. He doesn't focus even on works so much. What he does focus on is heart and mindset. Timothy, instruct the heart of your people. Instruct the mindset of your people. Because that is of value. Because if the heart and the mindset are right, the actions will follow suit. Because the Bible makes no room for this dynamic leader who's very shallow. It would ra- ra- rather have a very undynamic leader who is very deep, deeply rooted in Christ, deeply given to the holiness of God. And when, dy- uh, when dynamic and holiness come together, it's a beautiful thing. But we would much rather have someone whose character is good than whose gifts are great. Now, when he says here. So we've gotten verse verse 14 through verse 14. I said I would I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, we've said he anticipates some delays perhaps. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, I want you to note here how he describes the church. He calls it the house of God, the church of the living God, And a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, so he gives us three descriptors that tell us something about what it means to be the church. Now, firstly, he calls us the house of God. Not that you will know what this means, but in Greek, that's a genitive. What a genitive means is it's possessive. We're God's house, God owns it. We're not our own, we're not left to ourselves. This gathered body is not Brad's church, it's not Richard's church, it's not the elder's church. This is God's church. We are God's people. We are God's sheep. Now, I and the other elders are under-shepherds of the great shepherd. We have been called and empowered to lead, and so we do that under God's supervision. But the idea is, is that this is the house of God because God created it. It's not the elders who sustain the chapel. It's not even the congregation that sustains the chapel. God sustains the chapel by His mercy that we sing of often, And God uses your generosity. You are a very generous church to help sustain the chapel and to sustain our missionaries. But we've got to give glory to God because we are God's house, God's people, God's bride, God's sheep, God's creation, God's everything. And so because we are of His creative force, we exist. And it's just like Paul would tell the Corinthian church. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, talking about the redemption of Christ. He's saying here to Timothy, remind the church, or he's reminding Timothy, that the church is not yours or mine. It's God's house. And so we do well to remember that. We are not here for us. We are here for the glory and worship of God. Now, we draw benefit from that, but that's another sermon for another time. He elaborates on that. So we're the house of God. Again, genitive, possessive, we're the church of the living God. But now he adds a descriptor to who God is, and he uses another word for us that is important, church. By calling us the ecclesia, it is a combination of two words. That is what the Greek word for church is, the ecclesia, uh, the called out ones. So now we're not just the house of God, the, the place where God dwells, the place that God owns, we are those who've been called out of one thing and into something else. That from is spatial. It means we've moved from a position to another position. So now we are the ones who are called out of the world to this living God. And I love that Paul describes him as the living God because he's given us some, an identity pointer about who God is. Who is God? He's living. That's exactly why when Moses said, "'Who shall I tell them sent me, Lord?' He said, you should tell him that I am sent you. Why? Because he is not the God of the living, Jesus would later say. I mean, he is the God of the living. Man, having a few slips here today. I think I drank too much coffee this morning. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so this living God, he gives life to his people purely by his presence. It is into his presence that we are called and into his presence we have life. Now there's a fundamental implication here about this one. If God, if we are the house or the church of the living God, we are indwelt by the living God, we are indwelt by life itself. The life of Christ is in us. We bring the life of Christ to the world. We bring the life of Christ to the hurting and broken. We bring the life of Christ to the dead. We bring the life of Christ to the lost. And again, so often it's not through some sort of set of dynamic gifts. Often it's through loving relationship. Often it's through people seeing your character and recognizing you're different. You're not like my other coworkers. You're not like my other friends. And they'll say that and notice that when they see the life of Christ working in us when they see us in all our imperfections and in all life's hurts, still having joy, still having peace, still uh, giving patience, still giving charity, still being self-controlled, choosing faithfulness when it would be easier not to because the life of Christ embodies us and so we have His life, we bring it to the world. And beloved of God, the world needs the life of Christ right now more I won't say more than ever. Actually, I was, let's just say it like this. The world needs the life of Christ today. Today. It needs it today. And if Christ tarries and you wake up tomorrow, it will need it tomorrow. And if Christ tarries and you wake up on Tuesday, it will need it on Tuesday. And so forth and so on. So we're the house of God. We're the church of the living God. But Paul also calls us here, and this is profound. He calls us a pillar and buttress of the truth. Man, there is so much here. We won't even have time to plumb all that it can be. But if you think about a buttress, something that gives firm foundation to, sets it right, keeps keeps it firm. And we think about a pillar often used to lift up, right, to raise something up. And so when you think about ancient ancient Roman architecture, I don't have to display a picture, we all know what I'm thinking about, where you have all these columns, all these pillars holding up these high roofs. So in, in some sense, the church is foundational to the truth. The truth has been imparted to the church, and so truth is founded here. And in another sense, we lift up, we lift up the truth for the world to see. Now, I'm grateful for John, to John Stott for bringing that imagery to my mind, and I think he's right by saying the truth or the church is both of those things. The, we 've been imparted the truth through the apostolic teaching, and so we are the place of truth, and we also lift the truth of Christ for the world to see. But even aside from those two from that picture. The church, we must remember, is foundational to the truth of God. This is a bold statement that Paul makes. It's a very bold and profound statement. That the church of Christ both possesses and dispenses the truth of Christ. That we are called to live and proclaim the truth of Christ. That as the gathered body, the truth of Christ is present here and remains so. So this is where we have to deal with that notion. And I hear it. As a pastor, I hear people I know and love say it. They don't always say it quite this way, but this is the sum of what they're saying. Me and Jesus, and really that's all I need. I don't need the church. I've been hurt by the church. The church is a place full of hypocrites and bigots and people who who don't really live what they believe. And you know what? Sometimes we have to say, you're right. It is. And you would add to our number if you came because everybody is hypocritical to some degree or another. That's not Brad saying it's okay. It's just Brad saying that that's what it is. That is the truth. But what Paul, the way that Paul writes this here, that if you're separated from the church in a meaningful way, you're separated from the truth, that if me and Jesus is all I need is someone's philosophy, that this misses the truth, that the church has been imparted with the truth. The church has been given the truth of Christ. When Jesus made his confession, I mean, when Peter made his confession of Jesus in Matthew 16, you are the son of the living God, and Peter, and Jesus tells Peter, um, Peter, son of Simon, you know, you'll no longer be called a Simon, you'll be called Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The rock that Jesus builds his church on is the truth of Peter's confession. The truth of who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus says, now I have come, my ministry is here, the truth is here, I'm imparting to you apostles, and on this rock of truth, I'm going to build the church. And so when someone tells us they've abandoned the church, though they still walk with Jesus, we know in our hearts, no, you've abandoned the truth because you've abandoned the place where the truth is founded. And so, pray for your loved ones who may say that to you. I pray for mine who say it to me because it is a very, very, very serious thing to separate yourself from the assembly. When we think about Jesus, He's the foundation. Of course, He's the anchor. Both of those images work that the world needs. He's, he is found... He is found in faithful churches. This is another profound idea that is laid out here by Paul. That is why when you read the book of Revelation, especially the seven letters to the church, and in some churches, Jesus is threatening to remove the lampstand. The lampstand is the symbol of his presence. And faithful churches preach Christ, the lampstand remains. When churches cease to preach Christ and preach a false gospel, the lampstand is snatched away and there are churches in our midst who have no lampstand. And so when we think about what it means to be faithful to the truth and faithful to the gospel and faithful to Christ, that means that we are preaching Christ from this book about Christ to people who need Christ and to people who have Christ who need to be transformed more into the image of Christ. We don't need a sermonette We don't need a feel-good story. We need the Word of God. And Jesus is found where that Word is preached. So we are not just an assembly. We're not just any assembly. We are the assembly where God dwells. And we want to guard and protect that and shout it from the rooftops because that is the identity of who we are. And I love that Paul sums it up right here. So... Verse 15: the heart of First Timothy. We move on to verse 16. "Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." I want to stop right there for a second. This is an interesting phrase, "The mystery of godliness." If you remember in verse nine, Paul or verse nine of chapter three, Paul had said, "They must hold the mystery of the faith, and there I explained that in Greek, the word mysterion is not the same idea in English. In English, a mystery can't be solved. You remember the show Unsolved Mysteries? That's the, I, that's the notion of what we mean when we talk about something being a mystery. In Greek, it's very different, as I explained then, that mystery represents the idea of something that is secret until it's revealed by God. And so, I think it's the NIV who translates uh, verse 9, as they hold to the deep truths of the faith or something along those lines. I know they substitute deep truths for mystery. And actually, that's not a bad way to think about it. So when we think about the mystery of godliness that we confess, great indeed we confess, is the deep truths of godliness. It works well here. But what is the mystery of godliness? It's the deep truths of the gospel embraced and lived out. And so when we think about the mystery of godliness, it's taken the truth, of, the truth of God informs what I do, informs how I think, informs how I live. That's the idea. And that as you look at this, what we're about to read here in a moment, what we read just a few moments ago, that God has revealed the gospel through Christ. That's what this little sum is. And this truth is, It truly does inform how we live and and how we worship. All right, let me say it like this. It informs how we worship and how we live. That's what Paul is driving at here. So then he, he, he moves into this. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, there's been some speculation about what this is three main categories of things that people think what this is. Some people think that Paul is here quoting some sort of ancient hymn that was present in the church at the time. That's one idea. Another idea is that Paul is quoting some sort of portion of an ancient creed that was perhaps uh, recited at baptism or recited in some conjunction with the church during the early church. And some people just generally assume this is original to Paul, or essentially this is what the Spirit inspired Paul to write on the spot. Now, which one is it? It doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter. There's, there, it doesn't matter one way or the other. As long as we believe this is the inspired Word of God, it doesn't matter. There's no internal evidence that it's one or the other. So it's immaterial to what it means. Here's what we can say it is. It's a a nice little summation of the gospel, a little gospel sum in one verse. You've got the incarnation, you've got the Spirit, you've got heaven-bearing witness, you've got the resurrection, you've got all the things that make this a beautiful little summation of the gospel. So if you're ever in conversation with somebody and they're saying, hey, I've heard you use the word gospel a couple of times. You could turn into your Bibles, write to, chapter 10, or write to Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and begin with the incarnation, the vindication of the Spirit, the testimony of heaven, the proclamation to the nations, which is the missionary response, that the world is believing and trans, being transformed and Jesus was resurrected. It's all there. It's all right there for you to have a great talking point with anybody. Well, let's break this down bit by bit. Paul firstly says, that he was manifested or revealed, maybe your translation might say revealed, in the flesh. Clearly, this is a, an allusion to the incarnation. What we know is Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. That's the whole point of the incarnation. When we think about salvation and redemption, the incarnation is a linchpin. It, it absolutely is. It's, it's a hinge The gospel hinges on this because what the incarnation reminds us of is that Christ did exactly what we couldn't do. He died a death that we could not die. He became something that we were so that we can become what we are. And none of that happens if the incarnation doesn't happen. So he starts there. And so when we think about the incarnation, he then moves from there to vindicated. And all of these are written in such a way as the, these verbs like manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. They're not imperative, but they are written in such a way as to say it's a solid historical event. This actually happened. So he's vindicated by the Spirit. Now what does that mean? That means his life, his miracles, his resurrection, his ascension, all these things are evidence that the Spirit was working in and with Christ to accomplish these matters. So if the miracles, the resurrection, the ascension, all those things don't happen, especially the resurrection and ascension, we're going to say more about the resurrection in a moment, then we are hopeless because if the resurrection and the ascension doesn't happen, Jesus is proven false. And so we take solace in the fact that Jesus saw to it that after he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 people, which Paul notes in 1 Corinthians And says, and some are alive, actually telling people, go ask them. They saw him themselves. So he seals his ministry. And so through the work of Christ, that he is vindicated by the Spirit, it seals the redemption of Christ and the people of God. And then it says, Paul says, thirdly, he was seen by the angels. It seems best to me to understand seen by angels that heaven bore witness Heaven bore witness to the ministry of Christ. And we know from the New Testament, from the Gospels themselves, that angels attended Christ. They attended Christ in different moments. It was angels who announced the resurrection of Christ. It was angels who appeared to Mary and Joseph to prepare them for Christ. All the angels were working together to bear witness to Christ. And so not only does heaven bear witness, it looks on with approval. And I love this next aspect. So, in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. When the life and death of Jesus, what Paul is telling us is it compelled a missionary response. That it's not just truth, it's not just information, that it compelled people to go out and to proclaim him to the nations. It, it uh, compels us to go out and proclaim him to the nations. The gospel itself compels a missionary response. I'm going to use a word that was really popular a few years ago. is missional. It, it compels us to be missional. Uh, that People got so burnt out on that word because it became a buzzword in evangelical circles, but it's actually, that's what the gospel does do. It compels us to be missional people, to go out and proclaim the message. Here is something, here's one of the most hope-filled things we can remember when we talk about proclaiming the gospel. Literally stated, was believed on in the world. See, the world will tell us so many things about our faith. It's dumb. It's antiquated. It's bigoted. It's, you know, um, not relevant. It needs to be updated. And yet, 2,000-ish years ago, we were reminded that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, proclaim it, and it will be believed on in the world. God's people will hear his word and they will respond and transformation will happen. So as the gospel goes forward, beloved, I want to encourage us, transformation is inevitable because it's going to grab people like you and me who were lost before it grabbed us. He rounds this list off by saying, taken up in glory. Now it's interesting because one theory of this little uh, verse, this little, these six things, is that it, some people say, well, they're trying to form couplets or they're trying to have this kind of structure that all these things kind of go together. And we don't need to think of it that way. The reason I'm telling you that is they say, well, this, this thing about the resurrection is out of place. It should have come earlier. But let me tell you what Paul is doing. <laughs> let me tell you exactly what Paul is doing. Paul puts it on the end of the list as his exclamation point. None of this other stuff is possible without the resurrection. The resurrection is the seal of everything. It seals redemption. Everything like the incarnation hinges on the resurrection. You have to have Jesus incarnate for the gospel, and you have to have Jesus raised up for the gospel. Those two things. We can't debate either one of those things. You lose one, you don't have the other. You lose the other, the other one is false. And so Paul says the the crowning achievement of Christ, the resurrection, and it seals everything. And so redemption is sealed by the resurrection. Godliness is made possible by the resurrection. We have hope precisely because of the resurrection. And so we look back to the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ as the foundation of our godliness. And that helps us to know exactly the truth and how to live. So what would I say to you in summation? Plain and simple, godliness is never optional. Uh, Here's the thing. It should be quite normal for you, for us, you and me, to be thought of as godly people. That's not being arrogant. That's not being self-righteous. We should like you should like to think of yourself as being thought of by other people as godly. Being godly doesn't make us perfect, right? But there should never be a doubt as to whose child we actually are. It shouldn't be confusing for people to see it. Now I'm here, here here's what I'm not saying. I like to make sure I make this clear. There was this guy. I've said this before from up here. I'm almost positive. There was this guy when I was in Teen Challenge. And Teen Challenge was not fun, okay? I mean, it was good. God used it. But it was not a fun experience. It was very, very hard. And every time you'd go up to him, you'd say, hey, brother, what's up? He'd say, Jesus? Every time. And it's like, I appreciate the spirit behind that. But I think he was equating that with if I don't act this way because he ended up falling from grace uh, very badly. I think he thought if I don't act this way, then I'm not projecting godliness. Beloved, godliness is not always having a little click in your step and, and smiling and laughing. And Sometimes godliness is people say, what's up? You say, my life is terrible right now and I'm clinging to the cloak of Jesus and that's all I got. I would much rather have... The publican who beats his chest and says, Brad, I've screwed up again, but I'm clinging to Christ, than the guy who never has a problem. Or the gal who never has a problem. Because the guy or gal who never has a problem ain't thinking deeply enough. They're not seeing things as they are. So godliness does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean I'm happy all the time. It doesn't mean that. It means that we're clinging to Christ. And obviously, we grow in godliness as we grow in Christ, but godliness isn't reserved for the really serious Christian. Godliness should begin in the Christian the very day he or she receives Jesus. We are the servants of Christ, every one of us who call Christ Lord, and Christ indwells us through the Holy Spirit. Since that is true, since that is true, it's His character that the world should see in us. So let us all pray that we display more and more the character of Christ and that when people are around us, it's not as if we're trying to make them think more highly of us, but we want to leave their presence and say, that was a godly man or woman. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the simplicity of it, but the rich depth and beauty of it. Thank you for the way in which you display it Help us to embrace it. Oh, God, forgive me, forgive us, that we don't always choose godliness. We choose worldliness, we choose ease, which is pleasure. We choose those things that make the flesh feel delightful for a moment, but in the end leads to death. God, kill that in us. Mortify our sin and our flesh, we pray, with our forebears, that we would find the beauty of Christ so sweet that we never want to give it up. May we embody your character, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.